You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior research fellow and associate director of academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm here with my colleague, friend, and former professor, Chris Coyne. Chris Coyne is a professor of economics and the director of graduate studies at George Mason University. He is also the associate director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. His most recent book is Doing Bad by Doing Good, Why Humanitarian Action Fails. Um, Chris is here to talk with me a little bit about Austrian economics today. So thank you for coming in, Chris. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Maybe you can just start by telling us a little bit about what Austrian economics is. Well, Austrian economics as a school of thought refers to um, the tradition that really began in the late 1870s. Uh, and it's traced back to Karl Menger, who published his book, Principles of Economics, in 1871. And Menger was one of the uh, one of three founders of what today we call the Marginal Revolution, which was a, a paradigm shift in, in economics, uh, where economists moved from focusing on the labor theory of value to subjective value uh, and the role that that played in um, individual decision making. Uh, and then from Menger, you have uh, Eugen von Bavrik and Fred Frederick von Wieser, uh, who followed him, and then, and then up to Mises, Hayek, and more modern-day Austrians um, like Israel Kirzner, Murray Rothbard, and, and Ludwig Lachmann. Can you say a little bit more about that transition from a labor theory of value and more objective conception to the subjective? Well, at, prior to the Marginal Revolution, the standard um, kind of consensus around how economists or political economists viewed value was that the value of a good or service was dependent on the amount of, of effort or labor that went into either producing or securing um, that good or service. Uh, and what Menger emphasized, uh, as well as the others in, uh, in, in the other two founders of the Marginal Revolution, but especially Menger, was that value was not some objective function uh, or inherent in the good or service itself, but rather was dependent on the uh, value attributed to it by other individuals. Uh, that is, it was in the mind of the actor. And so if you think about it, um, you or I or, or someone else might invest significant amounts of, of labor, resources, and, and effort in producing something. But less consumers, that is, other individuals, value it highly. Uh, irregardless of how much we invest, um, they will not purchase it or, or be willing to exchange a, a high amount of, of goods or resources to secure that good or service. And that's really what, in, in a fundamental sense, what it was all about. Subjectivism, um, and, and what some people like Kersner call radical subjectivism or, or, or radical ignorance later on, um, which is related to that, um, is a, a hallmark of, of the Austrian school. One of the issues where the Austrian school really came to prominence was in the 1920s and the 1930s, the debate over uh, the ability of people to be able to calculate and make economic decisions in the absence of a price system, a market system. Can you talk a little bit about the Austrian school's role in those debates? What today we call the economic cal calculation debate really started in the early 1900s. 
And the debate was a purely technical one, that is a, a, a pure debate over economic theory. And on the one side, as the name of the debate implies, there was the socialists who wanted to nationalize the means of production. That is, in its original form, they wanted the argument was that they wanted to completely eradicate private property and the unit of exchange, so money. Um, and the, the argument was that um, in doing so, they could rationally plan economic activity such that you would either equal or outproduce what capitalism could produce. Capitalism, of course, being defined as, as the private um, ownership over the means of production. So the socialists argued that they could either equal production or, or outproduce in terms of material wealth what capitalism could do, uh, but also at the same time overcome a variety of the ills of capitalism, so things like inequality, um, unemployment, business cycles, and so on down the line. Uh, what Mises and then and Hayek came in and argued is that absent private property rights over the means of production, you would not be able to have exchange because you can't exchange things you don't own. Absent exchange ratios, um, which emerge out of exchange, by exchange ratios I mean prices, there is no way for economic actors to gauge the relative value of alternative resource uses. In other words, there is no way for economic actors to gauge the opportunity cost of using resources um, in, in one line of activity as compared to another line of activity, all of which are technologically feasible. Um, so, uh, you know, Mises, for instance, one of the things he said, to, to paraphrase him, is that planners wouldn't know if they should use platinum to make railroad tracks or to use it in jewelry, for instance. The reason we know how to use it is because producers of railroad tracks know it's too expensive to be used in that um, in that line of uh, production. And the reason they know that is because of the price of it. Those prices are traced back to exchange. And so that's really the core of the debate. It ties directly back into that initial insight about subjectivism that that's Manker exactly makes right. in, the, in the marginal revolution. So you have what might seem like a relatively abstract or theoretical exercise, this conversation about the origins of value, subjective or objective, that turns out to have these massive real-world stakes because you're talking about these grand social experiments in places like the Soviet Union. That's right. And so really what this all comes down to at its very core is really the wealth and poverty of nations. That is what allows a society or prevents members of a society from figuring out how to best use scarce resources to produce goods and services that they and other consumers value. That's really what, in some sense, what economics is, is about, but also what economic development in the broadest sense is about. Uh, and so th this debate, um, which again, many people simply um, kind of think of as a history of thought uh, episode, which it was, and it's important to on, on purely those grounds. But it also has uh, a lot of relevance, real-world relevance, as you pointed out, uh, even today. So what makes Austrian economics unique relative to other toolkits that economists and other social scientists use to try to understand markets and exchange? Well, there's a lot that, that's distinct about the Austrian school, and it's hard to do justice to it in a short answer. But let me, let me highlight one, one thing. Um, and then we can come back and perhaps discuss some others as well. And really what, what one of the defining characteristics of the Austrian tradition is the idea that at its core is starting with a basic axiom or principle, which is that people act purposefully. That is that people have some felt uneasiness and then take action in a purposeful manner to alleviate that uneasiness. Uh, and then from there, from that, that basic proposition, uh, those working in the Austrian tradition then derive the core foundations of economic theory, what, what Hayek referred to as the logic of choice. Uh, that theory then, that logic of choice, serves as a set of eyeglasses that then we can use to analyze the empirical world. By that I mean um, history or the past, as well as the present and contemporary policy. Uh, and so 
this differs greatly um, from the way that other economists uh, who come from a variety of other traditions start uh, and, and think about economics, which is um, they make a, a set of assumptions. Oftentimes, they're extremely unrealistic or limiting assumptions. Uh, they're focused on, on measurement and testing certain propositions and hypotheses. Uh, and, and the Austrians at their core reject that. Uh, and, it's, and it's more than a methodological point, actually, because once you start thinking in these terms, not only do you have a more realistic understanding of, of your unit of study, which is, is human behavior, but it opens up a whole array of possibilities. And let me just highlight a few of those. So if you, if you say, okay, we have this core theory of logic, this logic of choice, and now we need to apply it to the world. So how do we apply it to the world? Well, a key part of applying this to the world is, is understanding the world. And, and part of understanding the world, of course, is to focus on how the human actors, which are your subject of study, perceive the world. So when Hayek talked about the facts of the social sciences or how people view and perceive the world, really what he was tying it back to was this idea of subjectivism. This idea that when we talk about any element of the world, um, it doesn't have some objective meaning outside of those people who are embedded in that context and how they perceive it and understand it. And so, for instance, uh, people might say, okay, there's a relationship between a child and parents, and they might think in their head that's an objective relationship. Well, it's only objective to the extent that, that the parents and the children and other people surrounding them actually believe that's the, the, some, the relationship and the terminology, and, and those terms have certain meanings. And so while economics, the logic of choice, provides a, a set of glasses, that is a general uh, conceptual framework for thinking about the world, actually applying it to different aspects is, is, is the task of the economist and where things start to get interesting. So you brought up here some of the limitations maybe of the perfectly competitive model and even this whole character you're describing, this way of understanding how people act is so different than the homo economicus that most undergraduate students are exposed to and told is the only way to be able to consistently understand human behavior. We have to reduce it down to the model and make this list of assumptions about how people are going to act in particular situations. Um, doesn't it take something away from the explanatory power of economics to, to throw that out? Um, it, what's the alternative? How do you construct then your, your theory? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I would argue the opposite. I would actually argue that it, that it, it provides for a more uh, rich and deeper understanding of the world. Uh, and, and so, so Austrians, or those working in the Austrian tradition, by no means jettison the idea of homo economicus to the extent that means responding to costs and benefits and, and pursuing ends um, to the be in the best known manner at the time of action. Uh, what, what those in the Austrian tradition emphasize is a, uh, is a broader definition, if you will, or, or what I would argue is a more realistic notion of, of what rationality entails, uh, which is everything. Uh, all behavior by definition is rational, um, th th is the way Mises put it. And the reason why is because you and I and everyone else has ends they seek to pursue, and we seek to do those in the best known means, uh, using the best known means to us at the time of action. Uh, what, what an Austrian would say, or someone working the Austrian tradition, uh, would say that, look, when people change their behaviors, something else has changed. Either they perceive the good or service, uh, service differently than they did before. Um, perhaps their, the, fun, the values in their utility function have changed. That is, utility functions aren't constant over time for, for any of us, uh, and so on down the line. And so those working in the Austrian tradition have a, have a broader definition of rationality. It's true that we are not able to make very specific point predictions, uh, but 
you have to ask yourself how relevant and useful are those point predictions. The benefit, of course, is not only a richer understanding of the world, but, but those working in the Austrian tradition are insulated from many of the, of the supposed critiques made by those working in behavioral and experimental economics, uh, because what they'll tend to do is say that, look, uh, traditional economics is wrong because they have this, this notion of kind of hyper-rational behavior, but people deviate from it all the time. Uh, that's only because people set up the, the, the model and the framework as is, is assuming people are hyper-rational. But when you take a, a broader, more realistic um, notion of what rationality entails and how people perceive costs and benefits, which again is subjective, then the, a lot of those critiques go by the wayside. That also then removes a lot of the policy implications that come out of a lot of the behavioral economics, which again is that you need government to intervene to resolve irrational behavior which of course suffers from a whole host of problems. The main one I'll emphasize for now being that uh, what's irrational or perceived to be irrational to some third party may not be irrational to the party who is actually acting. In fact, uh, I would say that when people act, they're pursuing things that they think are quite rational from their perspective. And a lot of this leads up to, or even um, later on is derived from Friedrich Hayek's insights on knowledge. and. Uh, you could describe Austrian economics as the economics of knowledge. Sometimes people say that that unique emphasis is a defining characteristic of um, the study. So can you just say a little bit more about um, what it means to bring knowledge into the conversation? So, so what oftentimes is referred to as economic knowledge or the knowledge problem, oftentimes people refer to, to what Hayek's talking about, really goes and can be, link, can be linked back to, and really it's important to link this back to the calculation debate. And so Oscar Langa and others who fall into this camp of what today we call the market socialists said, look, Mises, you're right, we need some market prices, uh, but we don't need full market prices. Um, that is, we can still have central planning, but we can have markets in final consumer goods and in labor markets. And we'll just do exactly what, what you, you all do when you teach students, which is we will tell firms, the planners will, they'll tell firms to set price equal to marginal cost and to minimize, minimize average cost. And if you do that, just like the model of perfect competition suggests, you'll get allocative efficiency. Hayek comes in then and says, well, wait a minute. This argument, this market socialist argument, makes one huge, well, it makes numerous huge assumptions, but it makes one really important assumption, which is that you have access to the cost curves. Uh, what, what Hayek was saying is there is no way for planners to access the relevant economic information. They can do stuff. They can ask people, what do you want, for instance? And people can tell them things, and then they can produce it. But what Hayek's capturing is that that is not capturing the full cost. That is not capturing the cost that economists talk about. The only way to access that, that knowledge, that knowledge of time and place, that, that context-specific knowledge that Hayek talks about in, his, in, in most detail in his 1945 paper, The Use of Knowledge in Society, is through markets. And, and for instance, Hayek uses an example where he says, look, imagine the price of tin increases. Economic actors do not have to have any gauge whatsoever as to whether the price of tin increased because of demand-side influences or supply-side influences or both. They will change their behavior accordingly. And so what he's capturing in that story, that, that illustration, is that prices both capture um, this context-specific information and communicates it to people extremely efficiently. Now, many people misinterpret Hayek and they act as if, okay, if we just have enough computing power, if we just engage in enough search, for instance, to collect the relevant information, then we can do it. So we can have some kind of algorithm. 
Um, you know, for instance, Amazon, you know, puts up recommended books on, on, your, on your page when you log in, on your account page, um, based on your previous buying behavior. And people say, well, why can't we just replicate that kind of thing to produce paper towels or coffee? We can just do the same thing. But that misses out on, on Hayek's fundamental point, which is there's knowledge you can't capture. There's the opportunity cost aspect. There's daily, you know, nitty-gritty information that you can't capture. For instance, I'm sure most people have, have heard of an organization that loses someone that's, that's worked there for 15 and 20 year, or 20 years. And it could be in, in the most you know, roles that are considered relatively menial. So you might say, oh, that's an administrative assistant. We can replace an administrative assistant. That's quite easy to do. There's lots of people that have that basic skill set. But then the new person comes in. And it's not that they lack the, necessarily lack the basic skills of how to do administrative activities. But you say, how do I get X done? Who do I go to see this? And they won't know. Where the previous person would have said, well, I know exactly how to get that done. You see this person, you see that person, and you, and you can accomplish your end. That's the kind of local knowledge that Hayek was talking about. Uh, that's the kind, w one aspect of the local knowledge that Hayek was talking about. And those type of things cannot be captured by search. It cannot be captured by you know, hiring more people with PhDs and having them sit down and, and figure out complex algorithms and so on. It has to be discovered, as Hayek said, anew each day in, through the market. Um, and and that's, the, that's the reason behind his emphasis on the, on the knowledge aspect um, of economic activity. One of my favorite works by Hayek is The Constitution of Liberty from 1960. And in there, he describes what you're talking about as civilization progressing because people are able to take advantage of knowledge that they don't actually possess. So that's that's what you're talking about there at this large institutional level, right? That's exactly right. So so Hayek's argument for, for liberty, what he called the constitution of liberty, as you said, was that we, we have each of us have very limited knowledge. Even the smartest people in the world have very limited knowledge. That's just a function of, of human reason and what we can comprehend about the world. Um, but even, again, if you had supercomputers, you couldn't comprehend everything. And so what we need to figure out, assuming our goal is to have a, an advanced material civilization, that is um, wealth in the broadest sense, things that we value, um, not just monetary income, but just everything that we value, we need to figure out how to rely on the fact that we know, each of us know very little about the world. And Hayek said, look, when you allow for, for freedom, when you allow individuals to have a sphere whereby they have complete freedom and autonomy, um, as long as it doesn't infringe upon the private sphere of others. Um, one of the great benefits, if not the greatest benefit of that, is it allows them to engage in a whole host of experimental behaviors. That is to try different things in life and to, to use their, their specific knowledge, but also to take advantage of, of other people's specific knowledge as well. And for Hayek, that is, as you pointed out, what fundamentally drove the advancement of, of civilization was, was allowing for this division of labor, if you will, um, of knowledge and to allow people to take advantage of what other people knew and vice versa. Okay, so switching track a little bit, most of what we've been talking about now happened historically. A lot of these debates happened in the 1960s or earlier, but you and many others still use Austrian insights kind of regularly in your research today. Um, so you've written books on humanitarian aid, on reconstruction after war, contributed on post-disaster recovery and a variety of other topics. What is it about Austrian economics that makes you want to draw out these particular ideas to apply them to the contemporary questions? And, and how do you do that? So why does this relate today? 
Well, it's true that in most of the world, not all of it, in most of the world, the, the debate is no longer over capitalism versus socialism as a means of, of organizing economic activity. But if you look around the world today, you see things like a third way. In other words, most economic systems are organized with some mix of markets and central planning. They are mixed through some kind of arrangement of public and, and private partnerships, um, which, which almost mirrors the, the way fascist economies were, were, were set up, um, where you have private means, uh, ownership and the means of production, but you have government um, kind of guiding how private firms act and, and providing them with, with a whole variety of subsidies and other kind of favorable treatment, um, but in return having a say over what they produce, how they produce, and so on. You have massive regulations on a whole host of activities that, that private individuals are able to undertake. And so all of these things are important and crucial for understanding economic activity today and for understanding what makes economies dynamic and what threatens that dynamism over time as well. But then when you look internationally, when you look how nation states, that is governments that, that rule over a geographic area, how they tend to view, especially when we're talking about the, the developed world, first world governments, how they tend to treat and, and view um, governments and other societies, uh, you see that, that central planning writ large is alive and well. If you look at development economics, say modern development economics, so I'm talking development economics in the post-World War II period, uh, it is actually built on the foundations of central economic planning. It is built on, uh, came out of socialism. Um, it came out of the, the economists who were working on socialism, who called themselves socialists. That is, well-intentioned and enlightened individuals, um, economists, who partner with well-intentioned bureaucrats, can centrally plan development in entire societies. Well, that is just a mirror of what the socialists were trying to do back in the early 1900s. Then you come to military intervention, which of course is now fused together with development. That is, it's very hard to find situations where military intervention takes place, especially on behalf of the United States, which of course is the dominant military force in the world, where development is not, all, not directly linked in with that. Uh, and so what happens then is now you really have central planning writ large because you have not just development in terms of monetary resources flowing to build and to invest in certain types of capital or in certain types of institutions, but you have military forces going in and contributing to, for instance, regime change so that you wipe out the previous regime. And the idea is that, again, experts can somehow design a better society and implement that society um, according to their wishes. Uh, and, and that's really been the focus, focus of my research, which is to what extent can external uh, policymakers, and I use that in the broadest sense to mean both politicians, but also um, all members of government, so members of the military and so on. To what extent can they actually go into other societies and, and reshape and rebuild and change them as they see fit? And my argument, building off of, of, Hayek, um, of, of Mises and Hayek, so I just view this as an extension of, of their, what they were trying to, to argue earlier on, is that more often than not, these efforts are not just going to fail, but to impose significant harms on the very people they purport to help and support. It's kind of remarkable how consistently everything ties back into that initial idea about subjectivism, though, sure. because even with this contemporary um, economic development through military, you could argue that it's a failure to recognize and fully really appreciate the 
variety of different perceptions and valuations individuals hold and our inability to understand that as outsiders. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. I mean, the subjectivism point is a very important one. I should mention, by the way, James Buchanan is another name that, that's re very relevant here. Of course, he is typically associated with public choice, and rightfully so. Uh, but he also had, had great sympathies, if not overlap, with many aspects of the Austrian tradition. And perhaps one of the best indications of that is his book, Cost and Choice, where he develops this idea of subjectivism as it pertains to opportunity cost in, in wonderful detail. It's a short book, um, but it's, it's quite dense from the standpoint of, of the power of the different strands of thought and themes in it are, are very important. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to mention that as, as a tie-in here, because you can also see how the various traditions, that is, those who are working in the Austrian tradition, those coming out of the, the public choice type tradition, oftentimes have overlap and, and they're integrated as well. Okay, now for amateur economists, undergraduates, or just people who haven't read that much in Austrian yet, is there a book that you could point them to, kind of one resource that they could start as their journey down this path? Well, uh, the, the, for, for people just getting into Austrian economics, uh, perhaps the, the best book is um, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Um, it's, the examples are, are quite outdated, um, but the arguments are, uh, or argument, I should say, which is the art of doing economics is to focus on the seen and the unseen, uh, which, of course, goes back to Bastiat, who, who, which Hazlitt you know, readily recognizes. Um, but it, it's a great entry point into a lot of these ideas. Um, there's a lot of, of more recent work which is very accessible. So Pete Betke's book, Living Economics, is very accessible and talks about a lot of the main kind of figures and themes that, that, that one finds in the Austrian tradition. Um, Randy Holcomb has a, a great book with Edward Elger called, I believe it's called um, either An Introduction to Austrian Economics or An Advanced Introduction to Austrian Economics. I'm, I'm getting the name slightly wrong, but it's very accessible. I would also recommend Doing Bad by Doing Good, Why Humanitarian <laughs> Action Fails as a good introduction. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then a second book recommendation. What is the work that is most core for you that you would not want to go without? Well, I, I, the fundamental text in my view in Austrian economics is Mises' Human Action. Um, it is, if I had to pick one book to kind of take with me, if I can only pick one, it would be that. And the reason I would choose that uh, is because it's extremely dense. Um, it's over a thousand pages and um, there's a lot to digest in there. But, but Mises... Uh, in my view, is the most important economist um, in the last century at least. Uh, and in that book, he, he systematically develops um, economics from the ground up uh, and, and provides a whole host of, of different applications uh, and applications um, to apply that core framework. Uh, and the reason I wouldn't want to go without is because I'd never get bored. Uh, every time I read it, I learn new things and pick up new things. Um, it is by no means uh, a closed system, and by that I mean it's not everything's right in Mises. It's not that he, he nailed everything or developed everything, um, but it, he does get a lot of things right, uh, more than not, and it provides a very useful uh, framework and, and way of thinking about these things um, for understanding the world. So I, I, if I had to pick just one book, it would be that. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking with me here today, Chris. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.